0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect.
2: I was sitting at my desk at my house, scrolling, watching SCOTUS blog, as I often am found in the middle and
1: towards the end of June.
2: And to be honest, I screamed.
1: Last week, I called Allison Herrera, the indigenous affairs reporter at KOSU, Oklahoma Public Radio.
2: Yesterday was actually supposed to be the first day of my vacation, but I saw the decision. And then I saw that Alito and Thomas were dissenting. And I'm like, okay, that means that this decision is going to go the way that tribal nations who have been speaking out on this case wanted it to go.
1: Allison did not go on vacation. She's been following this case, Holland v. Brakeen, for years.
2: I didn't expect this decision to go the way that it did. What just happened? (laughs) Well, what just happened is that the United States Supreme Court left the Indian Child Welfare Act intact. And this decision affirmed tribal sovereignty for Native people. It's the ability to govern yourself, to make your own laws, to have your own courts, to have your own judges, to have your own police force, to
1: have your own elected officials. That's what tribal sovereignty is. To longtime listeners of more perfect, the Indian Child Welfare Act might sound familiar.
2: This is the third time that the law has come before the Supreme Court. The first one was
1: adoptive couple v. baby girl. Adoptive couple v. baby girl. It's the name of a case, and you might remember the name of an episode of this show. This week on More Perfect, we revisit the story of that custody battle over one baby girl. Ten years ago, the Supreme Court decided the fate of that one child, but it left open the question about the future of Native adoption and the power of Native American tribes to govern themselves. City. Oh yeah. This is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. And this week, a trip back in time. The story of adoptive couple the baby girl first appeared on Radiolab, hosted back then by Jad Abumrad and Robert Grulwich. Here's reporter Tim Howard back in 2013.
3: So I first I first heard about this story. Um, I saw it listed on the Supreme Court docket for cases that they were going to be hearing this spring. Well, the name
4: of the case is Baby Girl versus Adoptive Couple.
3: Actually, in strict legal parlance, it's called Adoptive Couple v. Baby Girl. So it's not a particularly catchy name. Uh, I gotta say, it's a weird name though. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard to picture. Yeah. So this is Marsha Zug.
4: associate professor of law at the University of South
3: Carolina, and she wrote about this case in Slate, and it stood out to me because. You know, it just seemed odd at first that this would even be a Supreme Court case. It seemed more like a, a straightforward custody case. Right. But when you dig in...
4: <laughs> There's a lot going on here.
3: Crusades. Text messages. State laws. Errors. Children. Supreme, Supreme Court.
0: Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Christopher
3: Columbus. <laughs> and it is not straightforward at all. Apparently not. So let me walk you through it the way that I learned about it. The story begins with a couple.
4: Matt and Melanie Capobianco, um, they are a couple who live down here in South Carolina.
3: He's a technician at Boeing. She's a developmental psychologist. Nice middle class white couple. They're in their late 30s. and They really wanted to have a kid.
4: They had gone through, uh, you know, infertility problems.
3: It wasn't working out. So, eventually,
4: they decided to adopt.
3: Enter a woman named Christy Maldonado. She lives about a 1,000 miles away.
4: I believe she's in Oklahoma.
3: She's in her 20s, already has a couple kids.
4: She's pregnant and decides that she wants to give the baby up for adoption. And she picks the Capo Bianco's and everyone seems happy.
3: The Biancos get the baby and they name her Veronica. We used to call her Boss Lady, not a lot, most of the time it was. Our
2: family called her that.
3: Yeah. Boss Lady. Bosses everybody around. This is Matt and Melanie Capobianco.
5: But you were happy to do whatever <laughs> she told you to do,
3: because she's just
5: yeah. the uh, poster child for a, a proud father, you know? Hmm. But it's just gone as, as wrong as
3: it could have possibly gone. This is basically how it unfolded on TV news. —
4: Rock session on the docket today. A young child ripped from the arms of the only parents she's ever known. — And turned over to the Native American biological father she has never met. — A man Veronica had never even met.
3: — What happened is, when Veronica was two —— Her biological dad turned up —— Seemingly out of nowhere. And according to these clips, hadn't been around for two years, had abandoned the child, and now he's asking for custody. And he gets it.
0: And the court is making them stand by and just let it happen.
3: Wait, why? Well, it's mainly because of this law. The Indian Child Welfare Act.
2: The 1978 uh, Indian Child Child Welfare
4: Welfare Act.
3: Act. Dustin, the dad, he's Cherokee. He's a part of the Cherokee Nation. So that makes his daughter, Veronica, eligible to be Cherokee. And the law is designed... To keep Indian families together. It gives preference to Indian kids staying with Indian parents. So even though he'd actually signed papers agreeing to the adoption...
6: He was able to invoke this law and get custody of Veronica. He signed his custody away, and he was able to then use his Cherokee-ness to reverse the rights he signed away? Just hang on. All right. This is okay. all going to make sense. Okay, but he takes the so, kid, is
3: what you're saying. Yeah. New Year's Eve 2011, with cameras rolling, Dustin Brown drives his pickup truck into Charleston.
7: Matt and Melody Capobianco clutch to two-year-old Veronica. This could possibly be
2: the last time they hold their baby as her mom and dad. For
3: the and that evening, Veronica is transferred to Dustin.
7: I
2: didn't feel like we had enough time for her to be
4: not afraid we're when
3: left she's... We love to, to strangers.
4: Yeah, when she's... I mean, to her, they're complete strangers, and I can't imagine that she's not going to be terrified.
3: And as Dustin gets into the truck, Holding his two-year-old daughter for the first time, a reporter asks him,
2: "Do you think this is in her best interest?"
3: And this is all you hear from him.
8: I do think so. Right, let's, let's get back, we need to give her a Thank chance you. again.
2: Have you ever seen the child before? They declined any further comment on camera.
3: He gets into the truck with Veronica, and they drive away back to Oklahoma. Can I? Do you, can I ask you what? What was the, when was the last time that you spoke with Veronica?
5: the day after, um, the day after the, uh, transfer. transfer. Oh, a the phone day call? After, yeah, we spoke to her for about two minutes, and we, uh, told her we loved her, and she said, I love you, Mommy, and I love you, Daddy, and I don't know, just a few minutes, and, hmm. but that was, it. that was the last time
6: we were able to be in touch.
3: And that was 16 months ago.
6: And how long was Veronica with them again before this happened?
3: About two years. Oh, man, that's hard. Yeah. And, you know, when I first heard about this case, that's basically the, the only way I thought of it, you know, is just yeah. that's a crazy injustice. That's basically all I saw in it. I
4: mean, if you're someone who has no background in this, then you see a case like the baby Veronica case, and you're like, whoa, where's this coming from? How can this possibly be okay?
3: That's Marsha Zug again. And her article for Slate kind of caught me off guard because the title was Doing What's Best for the Tribe. Two-year-old Veronica was ripped from the only home she's ever known. The court made the right decision. Yeah. So I called up to ask her, like, what do you mean by that?
4: So One of the things that's I think important to realize is that the problems that ICWA was intended to address didn't stop happening that long ago.
3: And and this is where the story turned into the biggest rabbit hole I've ever fallen into. <laughs>
6: <laughs> what, what did she tell you?
3: I mean, Marsha basically said the only way you can begin to wrap your mind around what's right and what's wrong in this story is to go back to the 60s.
8: Bert, how are you doing? how are you, Tim?
3: Great to meet you. Same here. And to this guy. Bert Hirsch. um, I'm a lawyer.
0: He lives in Long Island now, which is where I visited him. But in 1967... The fall of 67, I was on the staff of the Association on American Indian Affairs.
3: Sort of a legal advocacy group for American Indians. And he traveled all over, working with different tribes. And, um... One day... He gets a phone call from this guy, Lewis Goodhouse. The
0: tribal chair of the Devil's Lake Sioux Tribe in North Dakota. And this guy says, I really need your help. He said there was a child.
3: A Devil's Lake kid, one of ours, that was just abruptly taken away by social workers.
0: The Benson County, North Dakota Social Services Agency came in, and they took little Ivan Brown away from his uh, grandmother.
3: He was six. Or was there stated
6: reason for taking uh, Ivan away? Neglect. Because what? Because Grandma wasn't, wasn't around?
3: No, actually, Bird says that the social workers were looking for that classic nuclear family.
0: Biological mother, biological father, children.
3: So when they saw him with an older relative, but no mom or dad, they thought, uh-oh.
0: And they took him away. The tribal council was extremely uh, upset by this. They wanted to fight a battle about this. Bert took the case, fought it in court. We won that case, by the way. uh, uh, Mrs. Alex Fournier, she got Ivan back after a somewhat protracted battle. But
3: he began to wonder,
0: how widespread is this? So from 67 to the end of 68 into 69. He visited
3: tribe after tribe after tribe. Doing interviews. And he says that everywhere he went, he would hear these stories.
2: I remember it vividly.
3: This is Deb Wells. She's a member of the Rosebud Sioux tribe and when she was 10 years old, a car pulled into her driveway.
2: They come driving in, social workers, and they got out of the car, and I told my brothers and sisters, I said, go hide. And they had to drag us out from underneath the bed because we got around and got in the house. But then they took us to Scott's Bluff and put us in a foster home.
9: It was horrible
2: this was just part of every native family's history
3: this is marla jean big boy she grew up on the pine ridge reservation in south dakota
2: i remember when i was young we'd go to one of the border towns and my grandma would say stay in the car lock yourself in don't get out of the car i'm going into the trading post because they're
0: going to steal you really yeah what we found is that on every reservation? My
9: name is uh, Michael Evan Nohart. I'm a full blood, unpopular Lakota from Standing Rock City Reservation.
0: You couldn't not find a family that didn't know of a child in placement.
9: The social services came and uh, took me and my sister and told my mother and dad that they were taking us into Mobridge for physical checkup, and they never brought us back.
6: Wow.
3: Michael says that his dad spent the next 30 years looking for him. In any case, Bert would ask these people that he was interviewing, what reason did the social workers give you for taking the child? And the answers that he got ran the gamut. Conditions of poverty, alcoholism. Overcrowding.
0: Maybe they don't have adequate ventilation in
3: the house. No and, indoor plumbing. But in most cases, he says, the reasons wouldn't have stood up in court.
0: They would put papers in front of them and they would sign. They didn't know what they were signing. Some families. If they could, they tried to fight it. But they usually couldn't afford to. Look, the tribal people are poor. So uh, we began to do a statistical collection of data, state by state.
3: Asking how many Indian kids are in foster care.
0: Foster care and adoptive
3: placement and institutional placement, juvenile facilities. And what he arrived at at the end of that analysis is a pretty shocking number.
0: About one-third of Indian children were in out-of-home placements in non-Indian settings. One third? 25 to 35% of Indian children nationwide were in out-of-home placements. That's a real number?
3: That is the real number. That's the number you see cited again and again.
0: Nobody connected the dots. Everybody thought that it was their own personal tragedy. Nobody realized that this was a pattern and a practice that was decimating these tribes.
6: Wait a second, wait a second. How would this happen on this scale? I mean, like, is this just a bunch of social workers making the same decision independently, or is it like a policy? Well, uh, this is basically social workers
3: very much acting in the spirit of the day. Because you have to keep in mind that in the 50s and 60s, you have all these government policies that are put in place, whose entire purpose is basically to try to once and for all solve this Indian problem that's gone on and on. You've got this guy in 1953. who's a senator from Utah who starts basically trying to terminate the tribes. You mean like take away their sovereignty? Yeah, he goes tribe to tribe, trying to convince them or force them, tell them they have no. There's no way out of it. He argues that this will be best for all of them. I remember this. This was like out of e pluribus unum, like to 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 integrate them yeah. into the whole. They will melt into the wider culture. That's what will save them. Part of this was. Part of the social workers that were working in this period, they were working under the auspices of this thing called the Indian Adoption Project, Hmm. which was very much about that idea of, like, you take these kids from their poor conditions and you connect them directly to white families that are looking to adopt. So part of this was definitely top-down. Very much. In any case, the end result of this is that a third of these kids are being taken away.
9: There were literally communities where there were no
3: children. That's Terry Cross. He's the executive director of the National Indian Child Welfare Association.
9: In Minnesota, there were communities where there were no children. In Alaska, there were communities where there were no children.
4: I mean, what is what is a culture except you know the ideas and traditions that you pass on to your kids?
3: That's Marsha Zug again.
4: If you are hemorrhaging your children, then you're going to disappear.
0: So, what what do you do? Well, it's too massive a problem if you're trying to fight. Uh, all these removals of kids on a case-by-case basis, forget about it. A national law is needed. So Bert spent years... Walking the halls of Congress, literally.
3: Endless lobbying, congressional hearings, until finally...
4: The Indian Child Welfare Act is passed by Congress in 1978.
3: So it does a lot, but basically when it comes to adoptions...
4: ICWA has placement preferences. So the first preference would be... With the immediate family. So you're removed from mom, you're placed with dad, or maybe with grandmother.
3: If they say no.
4: Second preference would be someone else in the tribe. And the third uh, is any other American Indian.
6: Wow. Any other? Yeah.
4: And then after that, uh, then the child could be placed with, you know, another family.
6: Well, so if you're white and you're trying to adopt an Indian kid, you you have a lot of roadblocks. Yes.
4: But... By and large, most of us think that ICWA was probably the the best federal Indian law ever passed. It did the most to help Indian tribes, respect tribal sovereignty, and really fulfill the United States' trust relationship uh, with American Indian people.
3: But now, because of this case, that law may be in jeopardy.
1: We'll be right back. From WNYC Studios, this is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. We're back to the story of adoptive couple, the baby girl. The precursor to a big Supreme Court decision that came down just last week. Here's reporter Tim Howard from back in 2013.
3: So in April, I went to this conference in Tulsa.
7: The Board of Directors, Council of Elders.
3: Big room, there were 700 people there. Most of them work in child welfare organizations in Indian communities around the country. Native communities. There was some traditional Cherokee drumming, there were films, workshops, and All anybody could talk about
1: was this case. But there is no issue bigger now in how the baby Veronica case may affect the Indian Child Welfare Act.
9: So please, please do keep baby Veronica and her family in
3: your prayers. Everybody was on edge.
9: Well, I'm really worried um, in this
3: situation. This is Terry Cross again. He's one of the organizers. And he told me that, look, the Capobiancos... I feel for them. But in what world is it
9: okay for one family who feels they were damaged by a law to put thousands of other children at jeopardy for their own hurt? I can't imagine a world where that's okay.
2: Well, I I mean, it's hard for us to say that because, you know, that's not what motivated us.
5: Our daughter is what's motivating us.
2: How we feel, we just feel that in in this case, it was a beautiful law that was put into place to prevent the breakup of families, Indian families. And um, I just think it wasn't really supposed to be applied to a situation like ours.
3: They say, um,
6: but we get that there's a huge historical a wrong here, but what does that have to do with us? It reminds me of uh, arguments that happen over affirmative action, weirdly. Definitely. But here, the
3: details are 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 so different. You know, yeah. they say... This is a law that was created to protect Indian families, right? Yeah. But here you've got a Hispanic birth mom, you've got a white couple, and then you've got a dad who's out of the picture. So you're not actually protecting an Indian family, you're forcibly creating a new one.
2: Absolutely. I mean.
3: And in the process, you're breaking up a loving home.
2: I don't think that was the,
9: the intent of the law ever. I, I, my personal opinion is that uh, ICWA causes more problems than it solves.
3: This is Mark Fiddler. I'm one of the uh, attorneys for Matt and Melanie Capobianco. He also happens to be Native American himself.
9: I'm an enrolled member of the uh, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. That's a reservation up in uh, North Dakota, right on the border with Canada. You know, so I kind of had a foot in two cultures, so to speak. I'd go back to the res in the summer. and
3: Mark actually used to argue the other side, that the most important thing was to keep Indian families together— and that Indian kids... ...who
9: were placed in non-Indian homes would experience emotional, psychological harm by being raised outside of the culture. But then... I had a case in, um, I think it was 94. Which gave him pause.
3: Ah, uh, boy.
9: That's a good word.
3: It was a case in which this young American Indian girl... Uh, Sierra. ...wanted to be adopted by this white couple, and Mark opposed it. Even though in my heart of hearts I knew it was probably
9: not the right thing for the child.
3: He won the case. She was removed from the couple's home.
9: And um, as Sierra would tell you herself, she had, uh, she had a really rough life.
3: She bounced in and out of more than 20 foster homes, ran away many, many times, and got into serious trouble with the law.
9: And, and it, it, it always nagged me.
3: Mark says even though the tribes have suffered, that doesn't change the fact that if you take a kid out of a loving home, you're going to cause her real harm. And he says that's why he took this case. Because the Capobiancos, you know, they are um, among the most loving people I know. He says they did everything you could ask. They're just amazing people. They met the birth mother, Christy Maldonado, when she was pregnant. They got to know her. She felt a connection to them. That's Lori McGill. She's represented Christy
5: since last year.
10: And they were also willing to have an open adoption.
5: Yeah, we still have a relationship with Christy. We we love her to death. and Christy gave birth to Veronica...
10: They were there with her in the delivery room.
5: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the day she was born, I cut the cord.
10: Matt Capobianco cut the umbilical cord, so...
3: That's such a degree of intimacy that I I, I, I know. I mean,
10: having given birth twice myself, the idea that, that anyone other than my husband would be uh, in the room is kind of scary, but that it gives you some idea of how she felt about the Capobiancos.
3: Now, as for Dustin Brown, Veronica's biological dad... A couple months before she was born, Christy, the birth mom, sent him a text message asking him...
4: If he wants to pay child support or he wants to waive his rights.
3: And he replied, I'll waive my rights.
10: Rather than pay a dime in child support.
6: Well, there's the contrast. So in the beginning, it sounds like he did not want to be a dad. Yeah, and
3: then actually a few months later, he seems to make it even more official by signing a form agreeing to the adoption. And then he changes his mind? Yeah, you know, and and obviously I was wondering, what was he thinking? Because you can't avoid the fact that how you feel about this guy is going to influence how you feel about this law. Yeah. And so I was trying to get in touch with him. I was pestering his lawyers. Um, you know, will he do an interview? This went on for weeks, and and they were basically like, he doesn't want to do interviews,
6: he doesn't want to talk. Yeah, yeah, he, so you didn't get him. <sighs> yeah, I got him. <laughs> good.
3: <laughs> so, shortly before we were gonna wrap this story, I get an email saying, come to Oklahoma. So I went. He lives in this one story house on this tree-lined block in a small town north of Tulsa.
8: Hey, how's it going? How we doing? Doing, you? doing good. Yeah, okay.
3: What does it look like? He's just a very normal-looking guy, a little bit of an army haircut. He had a stash that night when he got Veronica, uh, but he's clean-shaven now. Uh-huh. Big smile. So anyway, we go inside, and the first thing he tells me is that Veronica's not there. She was out with his wife, Robin. Turns out he's remarried. In any case, test, 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 all right? We sat down at the kitchen table we'll and started yeah. talking. Do you, mind just ta- do you mind introducing yourself and telling me like where we are?
8: Uh, I'm Dustin Brown. Uh, we're in Noah, Oklahoma. This is my house. Um, I'm part of the Wolf Clan.
3: Wolf Clan is one of the seven Cherokee clans.
8: And my name, Dustin, means brave warrior in uh, Cherokee. And actually, you know, join the army up and go over to Iraq. I'm like, wow, I'm here for the Cherokees <laughs> I'm the brave warrior out in, you know, the desert.
3: He's been a registered member since he was a little kid. His parents were members and their parents. And he said he's proud to be Cherokee basically because it means that he's from where he lives. It's a big deal to me. So anyway, we started talking about the case. And, you know, it gets complicated. There's a lot of detail. I'm not going to go into all of it. But basically, he and Christy Maldonado, the birth mom... We've known each other since we were 16, We've dated off and on. 2008, he joins the Army. Basic training. He lives on a base. It's four hours away. Four hours south of... And
8: Christmas time that year, he basically says, let's get serious. Got down on one knee and proposed to her, said, hey, I want to bring you into my life. She said, okay, that's just great. And almost a month later, she'd send me a message saying that she was pregnant, and I was excited. I mean, (laughs) to have children with her was was one of the things I wanted at that time. Told her, I can move you and your kids up to the base. Housing was gonna be free on base. There was schools for her kids. She could get a job right there on base, you know. Everything was taken care of. I mean, everything was going great, you know. And then, pretty quickly, the whole thing just soured. It's impossible to know exactly what happened,
3: but Christy says that Dustin just simply didn't offer any support. He says that he did, or he tried to at least, but shortly after she got pregnant, she
8: basically just shut him out stopped taking his calls. I didn't get no phone calls, no text messages, nothing from her out of the blue. And I'm just like, well, what's going on?
3: And he says that he tried to get in touch with her.
8: Texting her up, trying to call her. Still no answer. Uh, There's a couple times that I've went back to the bar zone went to her house. Drove those four hours from the base. Knocked on her door. I could hear, you know, voices in the house. It sounded like her and the kids. They wouldn't answer the door for me. And then, one day he says... She sent me a message saying, I don't want to be with you no more. And three weeks after that... She's like, Well, I want you to sign your rights over. His parental rights. Would you sign your rights over? You guys are texting this or are you talking? Oh, uh, The whole time we're text messaging this because she wouldn't talk to me. What did you think it meant? To me, I just thought she wanted me to sign my rights over to her. And I'm like... This is something I really don't want to do. He says she kept texting him that question.
3: And looming in his mind was the fact that he just learned. We were going to be going to Iraq to do a radar mission, so... And he starts to wonder, what's the right thing to do here? You know, if
8: there was one of them chances I wasn't going to come back, I wanted to make the right choice and let the mother be that sole parent. And he says that he's holding out hope, that if he does make it back... We'll get back together and she'll just change her mind. Finally, I just told her, I was like, all right, I'll sign my rights over.
3: Months go by. Christy has the baby. He says he doesn't know exactly when because
8: they weren't speaking. But then? Six days before I had to go deploy to Iraq, I get a phone call from some guy in Washington County. A process server. Said, hey, we need you to sign some papers so you can sign your uh, custody rights over.
3: And the guy directed him to an office right near the base.
8: Went there and signed the paper. And what did you think it meant? Uh, The whole time, I thought it was just, you know, the paperwork for me signing custody rights to her. But when I got done signing, the guy said, you just signed your rights away. And so did the biological mother. The baby's been up for adoption. She's been living in South Carolina for four months.
3: Dustin says this is the first moment that he realized what was actually happening, that the baby was up for adoption. And he says that he had no idea he had just legally consented to it.
8: I should have had a lawyer there with me. At that point in time, I grabbed the paper. And the guy looked at me and said, if you're going to rip that up, he said, it's it's not good to do that. That he could be arrested. And I said, what do I got to do? He said, you need to get a lawyer. Which he immediately
3: did. And that's why the courts have ruled in his favor. Because they say that from that moment... He's
8: clearly demonstrated that he wants to be her dad. I mean, I never, never once did I want to give up on my daughter. Never once did I want to give her up. I mean, everybody says that I gave her up. Never wanted to.
3: Now, Mark and Lori say that if this were any other guy, any other man of any other race, the story would be over right about here. It's too late. He wouldn't have any rights
9: at all.
10: Under every state's laws, too late. Under the federal constitution, too late. He
3: rejected that opportunity to become a father. But he has one thing in his favor, says Laurie. He happens to be Cherokee. And because of that fact...
10: Not only can this sort of man object, but he gets an automatic transfer of custody to him.
3: And Mark and Laurie see that as basically the worst kind of preferential treatment. And that is unbelievable. This is John. John Nichols. This is Shannon.
5: Shannon Jones. They're
3: two of Dustin's lawyers. And John says, okay, there's preferential treatment. Fine, but... But think about why all the protections of ICWA are there. These roadblocks are there for a reason. We went over this earlier, but, you know, basically people are being manipulated out of their kids. And while you might like to think that that's ancient history... Now fast forward
0: to 2010... He says the same thing is happening in this case. And We have a registered member of the Cherokee Nation. We have his child being given up for adoption without his knowledge and without his consent. And they kept
3: this adoption from him for months, and then spring it on him six days before he leaves the
0: country? It looks to us like it was engineered to make sure he got served, but not in enough time to where he could put up a fight.
5: I believe it was absolutely intentional.
3: And Shannon suggests that they knew about ICWA, they knew it would apply, and they were trying to sidestep it.
10: There were so many
3: errors. You just did a little air quotes on errors, didn't you?
10: Uh, yeah, I did, because, I mean...
3: Like, I'm for example, the there's, account there's account. this one important form where Shannon says that they went out of their way to make it look like Veronica is not Native American. Because it would be yeah.
5: detrimental to the wow. adoption.
3: That's just, um, it's a preposterous argument. You know, the form... Mark and Laurie say the reason that nobody put Cherokee in big, bright, flaming letters... It's simple. Christy herself is predominantly Hispanic.
10: Dustin is predominantly Caucasian and is approximately 2% Cherokee.
6: What? Did she say 2%?
3: Yeah, Veronica herself would be a little bit over 1%.
6: Wait, this whole thing is happening because he's only 2%? Well, I feel like that changes things somehow.
3: Well, yeah, but you have to keep in mind that Cherokee Nation doesn't care about the percentage of Cherokee in your blood. That's not how they determine their members. Being
0: a member of the Cherokee Nation is like being a member of the United States. You are a citizen of the nation.
4: You know, if if your parents are a U.S. citizen, you're automatically a citizen.
3: That's Chrissy Nemo, Assistant Attorney General for Cherokee Nation.
4: If your parents are a Cherokee citizen, you're not automatically a citizen.
3: But you can automatically apply. So it's based on direct lineage. But still, you're right, because this is the argument that is most troubling to the tribes. Both Chrissy Nemo and Marsha Zug told me that if the Supreme Court ends up deciding that
5: ICWA
4: is unconstitutional because it really is race-based, unconstitutional because it's a race-based preference, it calls into question every single federal Indian law. Oh, there goes Indian law. This is a case that they could use to do
3: that. If ICWA falls because it's unconstitutional, it could have a crazy domino effect.
4: Every single federal Indian law is premised on giving some sort of special treatment to Indians.
6: What would that mean concretely if Indian law were to go away? It means that their
3: policing their court system, their education, anything they do as a sovereign nation. All of that just evaporates. Like a a, a tribe would just become another group of people on some land. That said, this is not the likely outcome. Now, the, the Supreme Court will probably rule as narrowly as they possibly can. And as far as the tribes are concerned, they can do a lot of damage to the law without calling it unconstitutional. You know, they could allow for this certain kind of exception to Iqua, which would make it a lot easier for people like the Capopiancos to adopt. So they could rule any number of ways. Yeah. And the thing is that
8: it's all strangely connected to this three-year-old girl. The whole time through this, I'm thinking I'm just gonna sign custody rights over So
3: So when, when she finally showed up, halfway through my interview with Dustin. Hello. Hi. It was kind of surreal.
8: this is my daughter veronica though
3: daddy hey veronica i'm tim she's got dark curly hair she's this ball of energy she's definitely bullheaded and within a minute she's giving me a tour of every single object in her room and this i mean everything who's that army bear army bear you
8: got one of Daddy's
3: dog tags on it? Yeah. She was a very, um, a very proud oh, cool. host. <laughs> yes. A few minutes later, she wanted to show me her geese. I don't think I've seen geese in a long time.
8: i are
3: about to. I'm about to. Those are, those are real geese? Yeah.
8: Hey babies!
3: She feeds them out of her hands.
8: No, no, no. Don't mess with that water. Come here, babies. Come here, babies. Thomas. Thomas the Train. Thomas Thomas the Train? Yes. Yeah.
6: So, uh, what
3: what could happen to her? Are they eating? Well, if the Supreme Court said Dustin Brown shouldn't have qualified... as father under ICWA. What they do is they would send it back down to a South Carolina court, and then they would have this new best interest evaluation. Basically, like, what's the best thing for her at this point? She's been with him now for about a year and a half, and so that actually might really change the calculation.
2: Hello. Can I have some? Can
3: I have you know, some and I want, I want to try honestly, hanging out with her and Dustin, in the backyard, it's really easy to forget all these people whose lives are just completely tangled up in this scene. But who aren't there? Christy Maldonado, the birth mom. She did not intend to give Veronica up. (laughs) She intended to
4: give Veronica a life.
3: Matt and Melanie Capobianco. I mean,
4: this has been going on for so long. We've kind of been in a holding pattern for like...
5: forever.
3: We're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And of course the the hundreds of tribes who are just worried about their own kids. Pretty cool. Are you a good swimmer?
1: Yes. I'm a good swimmer.
3: I'm a bad swimmer.
1: You're not. You're a good swimmer.
3: No. I'm a pretty bad swimmer.
1: No, you're not. You're a good swimmer.
3: How do you know I'm a good swimmer?
1: I know you're the swimmer. You're the swimmer. Well,
3: I appreciate that.
5: Yeah.
6: So the Supreme Court came to a decision on this ruling about a month after we first aired this podcast. And here's what they said.
3: Okay, so uh, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 in favor of the adoptive couple, which is to say,
6: against the birth father. To Dustin Brown, the dad lost.
3: Right. It was like a a 60-page ruling and not being totally confident what all the ramifications were. I just made some calls. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, For example, I Skyped with Marsha Zug, who you remember from the piece. Mm -hmm. She's a law professor at the University of South Carolina. Can you walk me through uh, what this opinion means?
4: Well, in terms of Veronica's placement, had it come out the other way, then it would be over. She would stay with Dustin Brown, her biological father. End of story. Mm -hmm. What we have now is the court upholding the termination of his parental rights. So
3: basically the Supreme Court ruled that Dustin Brown shouldn't have been allowed to invoke the Indian Child Welfare Act. Because he didn't have what's called continuing custody of Veronica. Continuing custody. Right. They argue that this law is about preventing the breakup of Indian families, and there was no Indian family here because they didn't live together. The dad and the daughter didn't live together. Right. So they don't scrap the Indian Child Welfare Act. They just say that it shouldn't apply in a case like this.
6: So basically, according to Tim, it was a pretty narrow ruling. What then happened is that the Supreme Court kicked the case down to a lower court in South Carolina, and that lower court ultimately awarded custody of Veronica to the Capobiancos. Dustin Brown tried to fight it. There were lots of lawsuits flying back and forth in both directions. But in the end, Veronica did end up going to the Capobiancos.
8: It's been two and a half weeks since our daughter Veronica left with Matt and Cap Capobianco.
6: And on October 10th, 2013, Dustin Brown called a press conference.
8: It was the love for my daughter that kept me going all this time. But it was also the love for my daughter that finally gave me the strength to accept things that are beyond my control. The time has come for me to let Veronica live a normal childhood that was so desperately needed and deserves.
6: Justin Brown then announced that he would be stopping his custody battle for good.
8: And to Veronica, one day you will read about this time in your life. Never ever for one second. Never ever for one second doubt how much I love you. How hard I fought for you. Or well, how much do you mean to me. My home will always be your home, and always welcome in it. I miss you more than words can express. You'll always be my little girl, my princess, and I will always love you until the day I die.
1: In adoptive couple v. baby girl, a seed was planted for a big case this term, Holland v. Brakeen. This time, the state of Texas and a group of parents, none of them Native American, asked the court to declare the Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional. It was kind of unusual. Unlike the Capobiancos, some of the parents who brought the new case had already successfully adopted Native American children. Only one of the couples couldn't adopt because of ICWA. Together, they asked the court to protect future non native adoptions of Native American children by striking down the law. That didn't happen. In a 72 decision written by Amy Coney Barrett, the court upheld ICWA, rejecting all of the challenges brought against the law. But they did leave open the possibility that the law could be challenged again in the Supreme Court based on equal protection. Justice Kavanaugh wrote as much in a concurrence. For now, though, the law stands.
2: That's big for Native people to read that, for people to hear that. I think it's such a huge affirmation. And these decisions have such huge consequences for Indigenous people.
1: Allison Herrera again. She's the Indigenous Affairs Reporter at KOSU Oklahoma Public Radio.
2: Native law is the law of the land. Our sovereignty is guaranteed in the nation's constitution. And Gorsuch even said in his concurring opinion yesterday that oftentimes tribes come to the nation's highest court with their heads bowed and with empty hands because they don't expect the the nation's highest court to give them justice. But that's not because it's not there for them.
1: What's the reaction been to this case
2: from the community you cover? People are just overjoyed, you know, like breathing a sigh of relief. I've been talking to one couple who are going to adopt their grandniece. When the brack case was going to be heard before the U.S. Supreme Court, they were in the process of adopting this little baby, you know, because she had, her mother had struggled with addiction, couldn't care for her. She was placed in a non-native foster home until the mother's family said, wait a minute. She's Cherokee, and so they're like, this is our responsibility to care for this child. A couple of hours after the decision, I got a text message from them, and, and it was simply, we won. One of the you know primary things that Native people cherish is their children. That's the future. This is a law that strikes at the heart of one of the most fundamental issues of sovereignty and tribal culture and community, which is children. It's not like the be-all, end-all of solutions, but it's a powerful tool that can be used to help rectify, you know, more than a century of tearing Native families apart. That's why it's so huge.
7: Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Tim Howard for Radiolab. And when they made the episode, Radiolab was produced by Tim, Jad Abumrod, Robert Krolwich, Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler, Brenna Farrell, Molly Webster, Melissa O'Donnell, Dylan Keefe, Lynn Levy, Andy Mills, and Matt Kilty. They had help from Megan Tan, Kelsey Padgett, Shruti Panamanini, and Derek Clements. A few updates on the people in Tim's story since it first aired in 2013— Marsha Zug is professor of law at the University of South Carolina. Terry Cross now serves as senior advisor to the National Indian Child Welfare Association. And Chrissy Nemo is deputy attorney general for the Cherokee Nation. The episode was updated by Gabrielle Burbet, Julia Longoria, Sophie Hurwitz, and myself, Emily Botine. Special thanks this week to Jeannie Sukerson and Jerome Campbell. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Siner, Whitney Jones, Alyssa Eid, Salman Ahad Khan, Emily Madre, David Herman, Joe Plord, Mike Kutchman, and Jenny Lawton. Our theme music comes from Alex Overington, episode art by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we have plenty of old episodes for you to explore. Subscribe to More Perfect and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. And support for More Perfect is provided in part by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thanks so much for donating and thanks for listening. It means a lot.